Amen and amen. All right, so you have your outline. So today, like I said, we're talking about divorce uh, and remarriage. We'll talk about gay marriage as well. Um, you know, obviously, this subject of marriage and divorce and remarriage, is a, it's an important one, and it's, a, it's obviously had a lot of um, energy in our day in the, the public as it relates to what is marriage. Marriage is currently um, been redefined in our nation legally to include more than one man and one woman. And so we need to speak into that as a church, you know, and, and furthermore, uh, you know, every single one of us knows somebody who, uh, well, you know somebody who's been married, but you, you know somebody who has uh, gone through divorce, and, and that's very difficult, that's very challenging. I was thinking about, you know, there's the issue of divorce, but then there are the, oh, we've got a little child left an offering up here on the altar or something. But you have the issue of divorce, but then you have also the ripple effects of divorce. Um, there's, there's so many repercussions. And uh, I mean, there's a, there's a home that's for sale in my neighborhood right now because the family got divorced. And so, you know, you can see kind of the shrapnel everywhere when marriages dissolve and, and there's breakups. And so here's what we need. We need clarity so that we can know what God thinks and that we can align our hearts with God's thoughts and God's ways. Not, not because we're caring about being legalists or dropping judgments on people. And I think that's one of the char- most challenging things for folks that have been through uh, divorce or, or just marital difficulties in general. It just feels like there's a shame thing to it. And, and the Lord has an opinion, and He has an opinion about how we should all carry our hearts uh, in regard to people that are going through marital challenges. And so what we want to do is we want to get in the, into the mind of the Lord, and that can only happen by the Holy Spirit teaching us through His Word. Amen. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. And I'm just going to walk it through piece by piece because, uh, surprisingly, this is a pretty complex issue when you actually get into the Scriptures. And there are, there are uh, places of slight ambiguity that I want to speak into. So let's just start here with Roman numeral one, and we'll do like what we did last week. We'll talk about creator and created, design and what the designer, the designer and the design, what was intended. So what was God's design for marriage? Here it is. God created the marital relationship. He's the one who authored it. It's not something that man has made. It's something that God designed, divinely designed and ordained. And so it's God's uh, uh, authority to define what marriage is. Now, here's the thing. If we, can, if we can remember, like I talked about last week, and those of you who weren't here, you can listen to it online. But we talked about how the Creator is the only one who is authorized and has the power to give definition to what He creates. And if you have that concept firmly settled, then you recognize that as humans, we don't have the authority, power, wisdom, or anything to be able to give our own definitions to the institutions that God has made. We can't define uh, ourselves. God does that. Nor can we define something like what marriage is. We have to get our definitions from heaven. We have to get them from what the Lord says. Otherwise, we're just we're just taking the place of God. We're just stepping right into His role and saying, you know what, you're not God, we are, and we'll tell you what we think things should be like. 
And that's not the way of things, is it? That's not how things are supposed to go. I find this, if I read the instructions on anything I do, it actually goes a lot better. Can I get an amen from the men in the room? I, I'll just tell you a little story about reading the instructions. Well, yesterday, I rebuilt a toilet in my house. Glory to God. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I, I'm not a plumber. I'm not even handy, but I got in there and I got all that stuff, all those pieces and parts. They were brittle and old 20 year old things in there. Got them all out. Went, I got online and I figured out all the little parts I needed and ordered them all. And then when I got in there, I realized, well, I've ordered all the parts to replace everything in there except for the one part that was broken. (laughs) So then I went down to Home Depot, spent an hour and a half finding that one part. And then (laughs) you ever do that? Get lost in Home Depot? Then got back, man, I put it, I I read the instructions, guys, I did. I read them, and do you know what? Everything that I put in, it worked. It was glorious. But but you know what happened? One little washer that decided that it was rotten, it started leaking after I put it all back together. So I created one drip that will now render my toilet inoperable until that guy is fixed, but everything else is fixed. But it just goes so much better in general. Now I'm going to get the instructions on how to stop a leaky washer. When we read the instructions, and and the Bible's the instructions, and God gives us the instructions. He's the creator. We're the created. We don't define ourselves. That's my point. So it's a God-defined relationship. Look at Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. I just, I think of how marriage is a, it's a uh, walking miracle when you have two people who commit their lives to one another and how when they come together, the Lord says, they've now become one. And, and even in that thought, as we talked last week, there's male and female that God has created to express His own nature that in the marital relationship, the coming together of male and female It's now, it's a God type. It's an expression of himself. And so it's amazing to me that he creates the family unit causing a male and female to come together as an expression of himself. And that's what we find out about marriage is that it's primarily and firstly an expression of who God is. And so I say this in B, that he designates that in marriage, one man and one woman would leave their own parents and families and be joined with one another in a lifelong pledge of love and faithfulness. It's a covenant agreement that God intended to last for a lifetime. Everybody say, for a lifetime. What's interesting to me is this, that God designed humans to function the best if they're with one partner the rest of their lives. Otherwise, he would not have given us a covenant by which we enter into marriage that should therefore last the rest of our lives. So he actually wired us where monogamy is actually the way your frame is built and uh, uh, having a lifelong partner, one lifelong partner is actually what your frame is mostly suited for. Now, I know that that's not what the, the world wants to teach us, nor is that what is popular in movies and and really in society, you know, there's this whole thing that you just have to have, you know, you've got to be able to play the field. You've got to be able to, you know, be around with all these other people. But 
let me just tell you something. God didn't make the human frame that way. God made us creatures of habit. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed that you can, when you leave your house in the morning and you drive to work, you can be thinking about all sorts of things in your mind, get to work, and you go, man, how did I even get here? I'm just like on autopilot all the way to work. Is that just me? That's, that's you guys. You ever, you ever gotten up to uh, have to go to the restroom in the middle of the night and you don't even barely open your eyes and you make it all the way in and all the way out? And you, then you in the morning, you go, did I dream that? Well, the reason why is we're creatures of habit. We're made we're made to act, we have, we have muscle memory, we have all sorts of uh, emotional things that, that, are, that, are, that are static in us. We're made actually to, to, to stay with the same things. And that's what God made us like in, in marriage. That we actually learn and grow and, and, and we, we exp- experience something that's in our very makeup when we stay with that same person and grow over a lifetime. The problem is most people today, they're not getting married thinking about love. They're not thinking about faithfulness. They're not thinking about what it's going to look like for my life. They're thinking about what does, I, what does my momentary infatuation feel right now? And so they operate on their, their romantic infatuation instead of on a pledge of faithfulness for life. And so that, you know, you, know, you, you got to give 20-year-olds a little break. If you're getting married when you're 20, you probably don't know what a pledge of faithfulness for life, for life even looks like. But I think so much in our society, the romantic, you know, sway that's on so much of our media, movies, TV shows, it, it, it causes people to think that marriage is all about what can I get out of it? How does it make me feel? And what's, what's the greatest thing for me that I'm going to get out of this thing? And I'll just tell you that that's not what marriage is about at all. In fact, we'll look at the, we'll, we'll look at the, the Bible and, and see that that's actually the opposite of what marriage is about. So back to God's design. It's a covenant that's intended to last for a lifetime. This is an interesting thought. Marriage is unique to this age. Jesus is really clear about this. They, they questioned him. They're trying to trap him. They said, so in the next age, if you have a, you have a woman that's been married three or four times because her husband's died, who's, whose wife is she? He goes, you guys don't understand a thing. Which I think is kind of how Jesus looks at us often. He goes, you guys are so cute. You don't get anything. It's okay. He goes, in the next age, in the resurrection, they're not given in marriage. In fact, it's interesting because this age, it finalizes every human marriage covenant so that we can step into another marriage covenant. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus himself will be married to the church. There will be a joining. There will be a marriage. Marriage is never going away, but there will be a marriage between Jesus and his bride. So the human marriage covenant is unique to this age. And then uh, finally, here's the thing. God made marriage. He made it the way he did because he wanted to bless humanity. When you read the, the Genesis narrative, it's absolutely clear. God looks at Adam and he goes, it's not good that man should be alone. He goes, I'm going to make him one that's comparable to him. I, I'm going to make him a partner that's comparable to him. And, and then what's interesting to me is in that, in that, when you read through that narrative, here's what he does. He goes, I'm going to make him a partner that's comparable to him. And then he goes, now, Adam, I have something for you to do. And you think the next thing is going to be... 
come get married. But it's not. The next thing is, come name all the animals. And I've done the math on this one time. If you actually figure out how many animals are in the fossil record, not talking about uh, fish, just, just the ones on the land and flying ones, it's like it would have taken Adam like two and a half years to name everybody if he worked like 60 hours a week. So I've read commentators, they go, oh, it wouldn't have taken him long at all. There was only eight animals in the garden. I'm like, what are they thinking? There's tons of animals in the fossil record. I don't think God was spontaneously, you know, causing animals to emerge out of the ground throughout. It's clear he created the animals on a certain day. And so Adam ends up with this giant job to name all these animals. And, and, and the Lord already has something in his mind. And what's in his mind is he's going to make him a, a, a comparable partner that he, can, that he could be married to. But Adam ends up having to name animal after animal after animal after animal. And so there he is. He's going aardvark, bear, chihuahua. I mean, he's just naming them. I, and, and, and the thing is, every time, there's two of them. Two of them. Raccoon, you know, foghorn, leghorn. I don't know what he is, but he's an animal of some sort. So he's naming all of them, and there's two of them every single time. And, and because there's two of them, Adam, all of a sudden, he realizes something about himself. I've only got one of me. And God's actually trying to communicate a few things to Adam. Number one, there's one comparable partner that Adam already had, and that's God. He's made in his image and likeness. But secondly, there wasn't another one like him, and that God wanted him to have a longing built in his heart to, of desire to have that comparable partner, that comparable relationship. And so it's after that that Adam calls, I mean, the Lord causes a deep sleep to come on Adam. He puts him, puts him to sleep and pulls the rib from him and then he forms woman. And Adam wakes up and goes, whoa, man. Sorry, little dad joke, woman. All right. Okay, let's look at, I've been good with the get dad jokes lately. The 20-year-olds are all <laughs> ribbing me about it. okay. Let's look at Roman, number, Roman numeral number two. And let's look at God's intention then. So God creates the marital relationship to vividly offer humans an experiential picture of his own nature and desire for love and relationship with us. Uh, I believe in that transaction where Adam's naming all the animals, there's a longing building in, in Adam's heart. And somewhere along the, along the way, he realizes this is a longing that's in the father's heart. Just as I'm longing for companionship, the father is longing for companionship. And so the Lord then creates this, this marital relationship to speak to Adam of his own desires, his own longings and, and desire for relationship with humanity. And, and this is a huge, amazing point to me. Every day we see couples, we see men and women married, and, and we, we, we see people getting married, and, and, and we just take it for granted. You know, you go to the store, the mall, wherever, uh, your job, and, and there's people that are married. And, and here's the thing. God made that marriage. He, 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 he's the one that had the idea for people to come together. And every single one of those marriages testify to us of God. He's always showing us himself. 
in the very union of a man and a woman, God is speaking of his own nature. I mean, it's miraculous, <laughs> completely miraculous that any man and any woman could ever be married, glory to God, because we're so different. But that embroidery of a male and a female who become one. And, and I know that it's hard to find, you know, marriages that perfectly reflect the Father. I don't know that any of us do. But at the end of the day, that idea that a man and a woman become one, it's supposed to speak to us of God and his desire for us. It's supposed to speak to us of Jesus and the eternal state that he will be in with the church. All day long, every day, we're supposed to be looking at marriages and seeing this is our destiny. This is where it's going. After this age, we're going to be married to Jesus. It's about God's desire for love and relationship with people. That's the point. We're supposed to see marriages and they're supposed to impact our hearts with an imprint of Jesus' desire for us. That's what Paul said in Ephesians 5. He said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. He's quoting Genesis chapter 2. And he says, and the two shall become one flesh. But then what Paul does for us is by the Holy Spirit, he interprets what the father was saying in Genesis 2. He says, this is a great mystery. And anybody that's married in the room goes, that's right, it is a mystery. But he says, this is a great mystery. He goes, but it's about Christ and the church. That's why it's a mystery, guys. And I'll tell you, so, so often we get our eyes off of what it's really about and we get it on just ourselves in marriage and we lose perspective. And when we lose God's design and intention, we lose perspective. And when we lose perspective, we act in, inappropriately. And we make uh, bad decisions because we don't see properly. Marriage is always supposed to be a testimony of Jesus' desire for people. And so it's a critical relationship. And this is, this is a, a big point. It's not principally because of how our marriages affect our lives and happiness. Marriages are a critical relationship that are not firstly about our happiness. They're firstly about a testimony of the knowledge of God. Oh, that, that was a good spot to say amen. It's firstly a testimony about the knowledge of God. Somebody goes, well, no, no, no. I got married to make me happy. And I appreciate that's why you got married, but that's not why God made it. God made marriage to testify of himself first. In it, in the transaction, in, in the covenant agreement of marriage, yes, there is much pleasure, much, much bliss, much happiness that, that couples can experience. There's much difficulty. There's much suffering. Nobody want to amen that, but you all know it's true. There's, there's all sorts of putting down of your own preferences, your own desires, what you think and feel and want. Why? To prefer someone else. There's all sorts of, of challenges and difficulties and hardships. There's all sorts of pleasures and, and joy that comes through, through marriage. 
But if we go into marriage thinking it's firstly about us, we've completely missed it. God created it firstly about himself so we could see him, so we could know what he's like, what he's into. And if you, if you just get your mind around it, you have to ask yourself the question, what kind of a God creates humankind, man and woman, and puts them in paradise, and he starts the story of human creation by putting them in a place of wonder and beauty and fascination, and then says, get married. I mean, he is a romantic God through and through. He loves a good love story, amen. And so that's the key that we have to connect to is that God's intention for marriage was firstly to testify of himself. It's not firstly about ourselves. He gives us marriage that we can have an experiential taste of his love, uh, of, of what it means to persevere and even suffer and even how God, how God loves, perseveres, and suffers with us. He shows us that experientially through the marriage relationship. And so I, I like to say it this way. I got this from Gary Thomas. He's a, a great author, wrote an awesome book, probably one of my, probably my favorite book on marriage called Sacred Marriage. He said, what if marriage isn't designed to make you happy? What if it's designed to make you holy? And I think about that. I go, man, that is absolutely the truth, isn't it? Because guess what? In marriage, everybody's going to the cross, aren't they? Everybody. I love you. I love you. I'm going to kill you. Me too. I mean, that's really what's being said there. <laughs> when we give people vows, we should say, do you promise to take this person to the cross, nailing them there too, <laughs> through your own selfishness and worldly desires? I do. <laughs> and do you promise to sit there while they nail you to the cross and crucify you over and over and over again? I do. Great, y'all will be an awesome testimony of Jesus. But that's really the truth. Marriage is about us going to the cross for each other over and over and over again. And so this whole idea that people kind of have today where they say, well, I fell out of love. No, you didn't fall out of love. You fell out of infatuation. What you're trying to tell me is the buzz wore off when it got hard. Because most people get married for romance, they don't get married for love. Because love isn't firstly concerned about self, it's actually firstly concerned about another. See, most people think that love equals, they make me feel good, they make me happy, uh, they make me laugh. See, most people, their conception of love the primary word is me. But love gives to the other, serves the other, blesses the other at the expense of self. Oh. So what happens is most of the time when we say I love you, what we really mean is I love me. Because we don't understand love. And love is the foundation of marriage. And so what happens is people oftentimes they say, well, I don't love them anymore. I go, um. No, no, love is a choice. You're just not feeling the feelings of infatuation that you once had. Hard but true. So finally, this D, marriage is a means to know Jesus more by becoming more like him through laying down our lives and being conformed to his image. 
That's what marriage is firstly about. So there, you know, logically then, the sufferings that go along with marriage, the difficulties that we go through. And I'm not talking about abuses and things of that nature. I'm talking about difficulties. They, they leave the toothpaste cap open. <laughs> you know, they leave the toilet seat up. They, you know, they're absent-minded. Uh, husbands, they're always late. You know, whatever it is. <laughs> Nobody got that. That's all right. Uh, those natural sufferings that we go through, they are designed to cause us to grow in sanctification and holiness. That's, that's what this deal is about. Okay. So with, with that in place, with God's intention and God's design in place, then, then let's think about what does the Bible say that God's mentality is regarding divorce? Let's just look at it. So there we are. Top of the page, 1 Corinthians 7. <clears throat> this is slightly technical. I want you to try to stay, stay clear with me. And I'll do my best in the grace of God to say it clearly. So 1 Corinthians 7, Paul gives a very clear, explicit command. He says this, to the married, I command. And then he clarifies, he says, yet not I, but the Lord. The reason why he uses that phrase is here's what's going on in 1 Corinthians 7. They have sent him a bunch of questions, and he's answering the questions with the letter, okay? Some of the questions he doesn't have absolute clarity on from his understanding of the Old Testament and from his understanding of the teaching of Jesus. So he speaks into their questions. And so sometimes he says, yet not I, but the Lord. And then he'll go on and he'll say, not the Lord, but I. And when he says, not the Lord, but I, what he's saying is, I don't have clarity on this, but I do have the Holy Spirit, and this is my judgment on it. Does that make sense? So 1 Corinthians 7, he says, now to the married, I command, yet not I, but the Lord. He goes, this one I know for sure. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. So the Lord's command to believers is do not get divorced. That's his command. If there is a time when you have to separate, he says, remain separated and get reconciled, but do not get divorced. That is such a clear-cut command. He says, it's not even me coming up with this, because this is what the Lord's command is for believers. Wow. Now, he's going to give us some exceptions. He's going to give us some grounds. Where in a minute, we'll talk about it, legitimate grounds for divorce. But he says, the, the biggest thing you have to know is that God's intention for marriage is that there wouldn't be divorce. That's the point. Now, look at this. Malachi chapter 2. The prophet is speaking to Israel And Israel is backslidden in many ways. In fact, the book of Malachi, he's just walking through several different ways that the the nation has turned on God. And he says, for the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. If you ever wanted to get God's idea about divorce, he hates it. He doesn't want anyone to be divorced. He hates divorce. The Lord hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. 
Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. And that dealing treacherously was a word to the men. Do not deal treacherously with the wife of your youth is what it, what it says in a previous verse. Here's the deal. What was going on in Malachi's day was this. The men would get married. They'd stay married for a while. And then when they got older and their wives got older, they decided they wanted to trade their wives in for a newer model. And he called it dealing treacherously with the wife of your youth. So they would write a certificate of divorce to their wife that they'd been with for a while so that they could get married to a younger woman. God's mentality of that is, I hate that. Okay? The Lord speaks very powerfully, very clearly about that. He goes, I hate that. And, and this phrase covers one's garment with violence. It's interesting. When you look at the commentators on this and the, and the way that the, the sentence is constructed in Hebrew, what you find out is this. Commentators are kind of all over the map on this. But several of them, I'd say the majority that I read, believe that this is a, it's a picture of how the husband is the covering for the wife. And how he covers her spiritually. He covers her as the head of the home. And that if you deal treacherously with your wife, you're covering her with violence. It's a, it's, you're inflicting violence upon her life. You're, you're dealing treacherously, inflict, inflicting violence on her. And so... The Lord hates divorce, he hates the sins that cause divorce, and he hates the outcomes of divorce. Now that doesn't mean that God hates when, when people uh, follow the biblical grounds to pursue a divorce, but the point is that divorce is never uh, God's first desire. All right, so now let's look at Jesus in, in, in Matthew 19. Jesus too primary teachings on divorce uh, are Matthew 5, 32 and 33, and Matthew 19, 3 through 9. And here's what happens. The Pharisees come to Jesus, and what they're going to do is they're going to try to catch Jesus. You know, you'd think after Jesus swatted them down so many times, after a while they'd just quit trying. I mean, it seems like every time they come questioning Jesus, trying to catch him in some, you know, loophole of the law, Jesus would just answer in such a way that would just publicly embarrassed them because he was so clear. I mean, he's God, so he's speaking wisdom from, from another age, stuff they can't even comprehend. You, you'd think they'd quit trying, but here we are, Matthew 19, heading, heading towards the end of Jesus' life. They're still going for it. So they come along to him, testing him, saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Okay, let me just tell you what they're doing. What they have is they have Deuteronomy 24 in mind where Moses actually explains that that men and women can get divorced. There can be a certificate of divorce written. And here's the thing. In Deuteronomy 24, what was going on was this. You got to remember, the Jews had just come out of Egypt. They were basically following the practices of the Egyptians, they had to sort of learn the ways of God. You know, that was the whole point. You get the law, we get God's ways and come out here and worship me and I'll, and I'll make you a nation. <clears throat> so 
what they would do is the men would, they would trade their wives to one another. They would, they would say, you know, for a while, I, you know, I liked you, but I don't like you anymore. And they, the, the phrase that, that was written in Deuteronomy 24 was, if you find any indecency in her. And so the man would then just write a divorce and say, I divorce you. And then another man would marry her. And oftentimes that other man would divorce his wife and they would wife swap. So then when they got tired of it, they'd write another divorce certificate and send them on back. And so Moses addresses that and he says, you are, that is an abomination before the, the eyes of the Lord. And that's what he's addressing in Deuteronomy 24. Well, what's happened is over the years now, the, the Jewish teachers of the law, what they said was, mo, there was two different schools. One school of, of Jewish thought said, no, that's, you can't just divorce women like that. The other school of, of Jewish thought said, yes. And they actually had religious teachers and leaders saying, that's what Moses told us, we're allowed to do this. And so they were using Deuteronomy 24 as a loophole in their minds for their own sin to be able to trade women back and forth. And so they had this any reason idea. You could divorce your wife for any reason. Well, so they come to Jesus and they're asking about that. That's what this question is. They're asking about that. Can you divorce your your wife for any reason? And he answered and said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting exactly what we quoted a few minutes ago, Genesis chapter 2. Because this is the way God always made it. God made it male and female for those two to be joined together and the two would become one. Because that's that's what you need to be thinking about, not your loophole of Deuteronomy 24. So So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. I like that phrase. God has joined them together. You're wondering what's going on in marriage. It's God joining people together. Wow. No wonder he doesn't like divorce. Because he's joining them. Verse 7. They said to them, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? Now, one of the things that's going on here is they're saying, Moses commanded us to do the divorce. And Jesus goes, No. You've misinterpreted Moses completely. He says, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you. He didn't command you. He permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, look at this statement, verse 9. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another, he commits adultery. He goes, in other words... When you do this thing, where you write that certificate of divorce and you send that woman over there and then you just get another wife just because you feel like it, he goes, that's adultery. That's how God looks at it. Wow. From Jesus' mouth, guys, not from mine. Okay? Except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. 
Do you see it? It's in that trading of wives. It's exactly what he's addressing. He says, both you men are committing adultery. And so Jesus, I explain all that indeed. The thrust of Jesus' teaching on marriage was directly related to the sinful practice of the Jews of that day. They were issuing divorce certificates, essentially trading their wives. And the Jews were saying it was what Moses commanded us to do, and it was an absolute lie. It was just, it was just those men serving their own lusts and their own, their own sinful pleasures and desires. Now, here's the interesting thing. In E, I mentioned this, that he, he says it in Matthew 5, that that practice of, of swapping those wives, that it resulted in not only the men committing adultery, but the men were forcing the women to commit adultery by, by shipping them off that way. And, and the point is that Jesus is making is, you think, men, that you're getting uh, over on God by using Deuteronomy 24 to, to serve your lusts? But he goes, I'm telling you something different completely. You've misinterpreted Deuteronomy 24. You're in adultery, and you're forcing her to be in adultery, but the point he's making is, and that's on you. You think it's a loophole, but I'm telling you, you're responsible for all of it. And Jesus is just nailing them. All right. Flip on over F. So I just explained what I just said in F. That, he's, that the man who sends his wife away, he, com- he causes his wife to commit uh, adultery. All right. Yeah, G, the main point Jesus is making is that the responsibility of the sin would fall upon the man who initiated the divorce in the first place. Okay, so what are the clear biblical grounds for, for divorce? Let's just deal with this now. What does the Bible say clearly about marriage? Can marriage be dissolved? Can there be divorce? How does it actually work? Uh, clearly, the Bible does make, uh, it, it, it makes an exception for divorce, we're going to look at Jesus' teaching and Paul's teaching. They actually fit together. And, and then we're going to address areas that are actually not explicitly mentioned in the Bible. So in Jesus' teaching in Matthew 19, where we've been, let's look at this, verse 9. He says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So this is where Jesus, he delineates it. He, he's, getting, he's going to give us clarity as to what are in God's, minds, in God's mind the biblical grounds for divorce? And he narrows it down to one category of sin, sexual immorality. And so this term, the Greek uh, term for sexual immorality is a, it's a word pornea. It's where we get pornography. It's not just adultery. It's actually a variety of, of uh, sexual immorality, a variety of acts of sexual immorality. And, um, and so... Jesus narrows it in. He says, this category of sin, the, the acts of sexual immorality, that's what is the only clear grounds for divorce. Now, people would say today, well, there's so many other challenges, and we're going to address that in a second. But if you want to stay very, very clear in your minds, sexual immorality is the one exception that Jesus gave as to where and why people can, can be divorced, okay? 
It's just, I mean, it's just as clear as a bell when you read it. He also says that if they uh, get divorced and remarried, unless there has been sexual immorality, that they're actually committing adultery in that remarriage. Now, some Bible teachers say they go on and on and on committing adultery. I don't necessarily believe it's this constant state of adultery. I think it's an act of adultery that they, that they, they step into, and it needs to be identified before the Lord and, and, and repented of. I know Christians who, who have done this. They've gotten divorced. There hasn't been sexual immorality. They've gone a year or two. They find another person. They get married, and, and they go, was, it, was that adultery? And I would say, according to what Jesus gives us, yes. If there wasn't sexual, sexual immorality to begin with, yes. That needs to be identified before the Lord. What, what Does that mean I need to get divorced from my new person? No. You just need to identify that before the Lord. You say, Lord Jesus, I'm sorry. Please forgive us. And there's mercy and there's forgiveness for everybody that commits sin. That's where we live in every single day. We live under his I mean, amazing grace for us. So acts committed in ignorance, acts committed in rebellion. We can go to the Lord and say, please forgive us. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to stand in opposition of you or I did want to do it and I'm sorry for that. I don't want that. I don't want to live in opposition towards you. Forgive me. The Lord is merciful and he he will cleanse that and forgive that. But it has to be identified. Most people don't. They don't identify that. They go, well, I fell out of love with him. I found somebody else. Glory to God. God's so good. And they just go on. And I'd say, no, Jesus doesn't look at it like glory to God. He looks like there's been a trespass that's taken place and it needs to be identified and repented of before the Lord. All right. Thirdly, in regard to Jesus' teachings, if you read Matthew 5 and you read Matthew 19, you find this. He's not giving an exhaustive teaching on marriage uh, and divorce. He's addressing specific situations that were common to the Jews in that day. And as I already mentioned, I went through the Deuteronomy 24 point. He's actually narrowing in on that specific situation. And what we find when we get to Paul is Paul's got a whole bunch of other situations that he's got to address because he's got a brand new church. He's got a whole bunch of Gentiles that just got saved. Man, one minute ago, they're like sacrificing animals to idols and drinking blood. And now they're like Christians. And what do we do? And so he's actually having to work them through a variety of things. And one of them is how do we handle the marital relationship? So as I mentioned before, 1 Corinthians 7 is Paul's great, you know, biggest teaching on it. Let's look at that now in verse 12. So Paul is going to give us uh, a little broader um, grounds for divorce because he's come, he's come up on a new situation. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 7 verse 12. It says, to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. And so what the, the new situation was, was this, that they had these families where one person was a believer and one person wasn't. And oftentimes, they would, they would go on living that way where one was a believer, one wasn't. Sometimes, sometimes, the unbeliever would just desert the believer, which Paul goes on to address. He says, if, if the, the believer, I mean, if the unbeliever deserts the believer, 
the believer is not under bondage in such cases, which means this, that they don't have to stay you know, married to that person who's now deserted them. So that would be a second condition for divorce. If you have an unsaved person who leaves a saved person, they depart from them, they, they leave them, uh, that person is not bound to stay married to that person. And Paul clarifies that. So that was a new situation that Paul had to address because he's in a new situation complete with uh, Gentiles getting saved and, 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 and some were saved, some weren't. And so, so Paul explains that they're, they're not bound, the believer is not bound in that situation. All right, flip on over. Thirdly, Paul taught that when um, one spouse dies, that the, uh, the marriage covenant is finalized with that original spouse and that a person who has a spouse that's died can be remarried. So there's essentially three conditions. First, sexual immorality. Second, an unbeliever who departs a believer. Third, death. Those are our three clear biblical conditions for divorce. Guys, that's all the Bible addresses. So some of you are going, well, dang. Well, what about this? And what about that? And what about all these others? And I, and I know. There are a variety of other situations, which is why I put Roman numeral five in there. <laughs> are there any other grounds for divorce? So I would say this in my experience, about 25 years doing pastoral ministry, uh, it's about, in the church, what I've experienced, it's about half and half when people come to me, about half the time, if they come to me saying, we want a divorce or we're thinking about divorce, about half the time, there are not biblical grounds. About half. And I have to look at them and I have to say that to them. I go, I'm sorry, what you're wanting to do is completely in opposition to God. Please do not do this. Well, you know, they're mean. They act mean. I go, yeah, I'm sure they are mean. That's not grounds for divorce. Well, you don't know how mean they are. Well, well, tell me how mean they are. Well, they're very mean. Okay, still not grounds for divorce. And, and I'll say, so are we talking about physical abuse? Well, no. Okay. Well, what are we talking about? Well, we can't get along. Sorry, not grounds for divorce. In fact, I'm not sorry. This is actually God's will for your sanctification. <laughs> that you would learn how to persevere through difficulty, that you would go to the cross, humble yourself, and that both of you would learn how to love. God's trying to teach you how to love. And so uh, literally about half the time, I have situations like that. Now, another percentage of the time, I'd say, I don't know, 30% of the time, 40% of the time, I have a clear-cut one. There's some sort of sexual immorality, actions that are going on, and, and there are grounds. And then there's this other gray area. And what I say where there's the gray area are these kind of situations that are extreme. Hear my word right here. They're extreme situations, but they're not clearly addressed in scripture. Something like physical abuse, something like ongoing drug addiction, something like ongoing uh, abusing the children in some way extreme situations 
where the, one of the spouses has clearly crossed a, 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 a marital you know, covenantal line and they've crossed a legal line. <laughs> Felonious situations. You know, and I'm not talking about they got a speeding ticket. Now I'm getting divorced. I'm talking about they are doing something that's harmful, hurtful, and endangering the family or the spouse. Those kind of things. Now, when somebody brings me one of those kind of issues, it's always very difficult because we have the clear-cut boundaries in Scripture, and then we have the nature and the knowledge of God, who we know God to be. He's a God of mercy. And I know for sure that God does not desire, let me just be very, very loud and clear about this. God does not desire anyone to stay in a situation uh, where they are in harm or in danger in, in a physical way. That's not God. So at the very least in those situations where there's physical abuse, drug addiction, some sort of felonious activity, some sort of uh, physical harm or personal endangerment, at the very least, separation is in order. And I would tell you in my years of counseling families, oftentimes, oftentimes, and you know this to be true because of just the testimony in our society today, there'll be one uh, uh, of the spouses who's being abused, oftentimes a woman. And she will feel because of loyalty, she has to stay in a physical abuse situation because it doesn't, it's not identified in the scripture as grounds for divorce. And I, and I always look at those women, I say, listen, 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 God does, is not trying to get you in here so you're somebody's punching bag. That's not why he, he created marriage. And that's not why you're married to this person. You need to, we need to separate right now. We need to get you in a position where you're out of harm's way. And we've done that several times where somebody would be in an abusive situation, physically abusive, and they would have to separate. And, and then from there, here's how we have to do it. We have to look at the whole situation. We have to talk to both couple, uh, both parties of the couple. We have to figure out where their hearts are at, what's going on. And with prayerful counsel, and, and, and talking through the situation, hopefully we can get help for the party that's, that's doing the, the, the sinful activity, the, the abusive activity, or the drugs, or whatever. Hopefully we can get that person delivered, repenting, delivered, and set free, and we can restore that marriage. But my approach is, and this is my opinion now, now I'm doing what Paul did. Not that I'm Paul, dear Lord. That's all I need, as you guys got here. Well, Billy thinks he's Paul. I am not. But I, I, I do feel like I've got the Holy Spirit and I've had to deal with these for 25 years. So uh, in those situations, we have to take them case by case. We have to look at where that uh, spouse is, the one that's doing the drugs, that's doing the abusing, that's doing the felonious activity. We have to decide, is this person even really a believer? What are they, I mean, you know, how hard is it to be saved and continue on just, you know, in your drug addiction? Very hard. You have to cross so many lines. So we've got to look at the whole situation, take it case by case, work with both parties, and then walk through what a, a possible solution can be. Can there be reconciliation? Do they need to stay separated for a while? Does one need to go to uh, some sort of rehabilitation center for a season? Is that, are all these options on the table? And, and, and in a, an extreme situation where that, that one has completely departed 
uh, the way that I look at it is if you've got somebody that's doing felonious activity, drug addiction, long-term, stays with it, won't repent, they just stay out there, we treat that one as a believer who has departed. And so that's, that's my assessment of it. Now, that's not without long-suffering, and, and that's not without real prayerful consideration. And I will tell you, that's not flippant. We don't, we don't look at situations where, well, it's, it's emotional abuse, Okay, I appreciate emotional abuse. I understand it's a real thing. We separate at that point and we get people counseling, we get them deliverance and we get them not doing emotional abuse anymore. Okay, but, but that is much lower grade than what I'm describing. I'm describing physical harm, drug addiction. You know what I'm saying? Extreme situations. What's common right now in society is people are like, well, we just don't like each other. We're getting divorced. No fault divorce. You know, you see the, the billboards. You ever see those billboards? 500 bucks, no fault. I go, well, there's a lot of fault in there. And I always think about the person that made their living on the $500 divorces. I feel bad for you. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do the $500 divorces, no fault divorces. That is completely not the mind of the Lord. And, uh, and so what's common in our day is people getting divorced for any reason. It's very similar to what the uh, Pharisees were bringing to Jesus. And I would say most situations, people have to work through it. They have to get counseling. They have to repent. They have to turn to the Lord. They have to humble themselves. They need to get a little inner healing, a little deliverance, and they need to find the beauty of covenant and, then, and see that thing restored in their heart and in their relationship, and they have to walk through it. Amen. Amen. All right. Finally, what about gay marriage? We'll close with this. <laughs> Sorry. I can only be what I am, guys. I just got to lay it out there and let y'all deal with it. Sorry. I'm not sorry. Okay, so... What about gay marriage? Well, I mean, you all saw what I saw as last year, the year before, when we got the, uh, we had the White House painted rainbow colors. Y'all see that picture? They put the rainbow light on the White House. I was like, wow, that is a serious statement from the highest office in our nation. I mean, if you ever wanted to feel the sway of something, just stare at that picture. And the next thing I know, man, everybody's Facebook profile picture had a rainbow on there. I was like, dang. And there's a whole lot of people coming out of the closet, and they weren't just gay folk. There's a whole lot of people that were affirming gay marriage. And, and it just was surprising to me because people that I knew who were Bible-believing Christians were all of a sudden affirming gay marriage. And, and it, it was surprising. It's, it caught me off guard. I, I, I knew that there was a lot of people capitulating in the church, and, and, but, but I also... Uh, was surprised at the number that I saw. And then I saw social media conversations and such. Let's just go back to the Bible on it and let's just deal with it from there, okay? God's the designer, right? Right? He designed marriage, yes? He made them male and female, correct? And he said that a man should leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one, yes? 
When you walk through all the passages on marriage, there's, there's not even a hint that there's another arrangement. There's just not. And, 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 and the issue of gender, as we talked about last week, there's not a hint that somehow gender identity is, 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 is up to the human choice. These things are not, they're not even hinted at in the scripture. And, and then you look at the volume of, of Jewish moral law and you find that there are uh, a number of sins that are clearly out, outlawed, fornication, adultery, incest, bestiality, and homosexuality. They're outlawed. And so when we, when we read the Bible, as we talked about last week, we read the whole thing together and we recognize that what Jesus is teaching is under the momentum of the Jewish moral law. He's clearly teaching with that as his backdrop. And so somebody said, well, Jesus never addressed gay marriage because he didn't have to because homosexuality was obviously outlawed in Jewish culture. It wasn't something that was even being practiced or even whiffed at. I mean, people weren't even considering. And so here's where we are. We're at what the Bible says in Daniel 8, where sinfulness and wickedness has grown to a height so that there's all sorts of different arrangements that, that are not specifically addressed in the scripture, but we have the biblical boundary and the biblical basis to know how to understand and how to approach these things. So here's the deal. The Bible identifies one style of marriage, man and woman. It, it identifies that that marriage, that covenantal relationship is, for, is to be for life. And, and here's the thing. There may be human governments, even our government, who identifies other arrangements that equals marriage, uh, maybe same sex or, or even others. I, 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 you know, don't put it out of possibility that people could potentially get quote unquote married legally to other things. Let's just leave it there. But here's the point. It doesn't matter if a human government says something is legal or right or good. If the Bible doesn't affirm that, we, we, we don't go with what the human government says. We go with the, the clear teaching of the scripture and the ways of the kingdom of God. Now that doesn't mean, like I talked about last week, that Christians should, you know, stand with hateful, you know, signs and, and railing on people. No, no. What we do is we have the same heart of compassion towards anyone who's in any sin, who's outside of the ways and the will of God, that we have the same heart towards anybody, just like what Jesus had with the woman caught in adultery, like we talked about last week. The church is to not sit there and point her finger and rail at people. The church is to pray for people, to mercifully thank God for the grace of God on their own life, and to recognize that there's not a place of judgment you're supposed to stand in. You're supposed to stand in as an intercessor for mercy. And we, here's what we do. We humbly and boldly call people to truth, and we mercifully invite them out of their sin and into the knowledge of Jesus. Now, some would say, well, you're just, you're so arrogant to say it like that. I mean, so many people have so many other experiences. I don't, listen, I don't discount anybody's experiences. I understand there are many different experiences that people have had, but not everybody's experience is truth. And here's our problem. We're living right now in a society where Truth is all of a sudden subjective to what your experience is. I mean, what, what if we just took the logic of that and just applied it? Okay, so I go to the gas station yesterday and the gas price has gone up to 275. 
What if I walk in there and I, and I say, okay, I want 20 gallons of gas, and he does the math and whatever it is, it's 50 bucks or whatever. And I go, oh, no, no, no. No, my truth is that it's a dollar per gallon. He <laughs> said, so what are you talking about? The gas is too safe. No, no, no. In my experience, I remember when I was eight, it was 99 cents. <laughs> I'm just living in my own experience. It's been that way since I was a kid. Do you, do you see the, lo- the logic of that doesn't work? We can't have truth and, and morality that moves with the tide of culture. We have to have a, a, a plumb line and a standard for truth. And it's, it's the Bible. It's Jesus' ways. Again, I want to caution us. Christians love to rail against everything that they're, that they're not like. And, and the truth of the matter is, oftentimes, they're three minutes removed from being the very thing they're railing on. That's not okay with God. That sin is as, as, as abominable as any other sin, the sin of self-righteous judgment. What we do is in mercy, we pray for, and, and we call people out of sin, and we call them into the knowledge of Jesus call them into the ways of their creator to find how, how God has designed them and how God wants them to be. Because in that is our greatest blessing and in that is our greatest happiness. Amen. Final word. Listen, if you've been through a divorce and it wasn't according to biblical lines as I've laid it out here today, God is not up there just, you know, filling his hands with lightning bolts to zap you. But what he does want to do is bring you to clarity on the subject so that at this moment you can address it with the Lord and in mercy turn, turn to the Lord on that subject and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I did that. I'm sorry that I participated in that. Please forgive me. And I'll tell you, where there's real repentance, there's real mercy every single time. Every single time. And the point is just what Jesus told the woman caught in adultery last, last week. Go and sin no more. Don't do it again. Don't think like that again. Align your soul, align your your paradigm with the ways of the kingdom of God. Amen?